No, this is perfect. Good morning, everybody. There we go. Somebody heard me. (laughs) Thanks, brother. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you guys for being here this morning. Uh, I love that last song we sang because it actually is a perfect transition uh, for me. The evidence of God's goodness, that we should look for the evidence of God's goodness all over our lives, and that's something that leads us to worship. Two places where I see the evidence of God's goodness today is, number one, having Robin, uh, Robin Dale up here. Uh, honestly, God has been so good. Yeah, let's give him, let's, yeah. <laughs> and that's not just, uh, that's not just an evidence to uh, their, their faithfulness coming back. It's an evidence to the faithfulness of the fuller community of Christ. We had people coming to lead worship for us over the last three weeks. That is the bigger body of Christ, working together to make sure that worship happens all over. Uh, and so you want to see evidence of God's goodness? It's, yes, providing us this space again. It's providing worship leaders that we know and love again. It's also providing people to lead us in song for the last three weeks. Praise God. Evidence of God's goodness as well, Adventureland. Yeah, um, this, is, this is a testimony to a church acting like a church, and we're going to talk more about that today, actually. So thank you guys for being here. I want to point one, you towards one more resource. If we're looking for an evidence of God's goodness, um, this morning, as I was getting ready uh, for today, I did think about this morning before this morning. I don't want to say that. Um, but as I was preparing my heart for this morning, I thought how important some, this resource has been for me Uh, and for our family, and just our own personal family discipleship over the last week. And I wanted to share it with you because it's it's online and it's free. Um, 40 Days of Prayer. Uh, This is something that the Gospel Coalition put out just this week. Stories of God's work around the globe. They're short stories of how God is working all around the world. If you want evidence of His goodness, here's 40 pieces of evidence of His goodness. And the thing is, we can't always see what God's doing, you know? We can see maybe some of the ways he's working in our own life. This is a total tangent. But we can sometimes see ways that he's working in our own life, but we don't see the way he's working in other places, in other countries, in other families even. I want to encourage you, find this free PDF on the Gospel Coalition, 40 Days of Prayer, and use it as a family to read short stories or just in your own personal time evidence that God is working all around the world today through his people. He is so faithful. He's working here and everywhere. So thank you guys so much for being here. We are a Christ-centered family that glorifies God by loving him, loving others, and making disciples. And today we're back in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 7, that's where we're going to be today. So go ahead and open up your Bibles there. Let me bring you back up to speed. We've been, we've been in a, a short series in the book of Mark leading up to Easter and the empty tomb, culminating in the reality that Christ has risen from the grave. He is risen. And because of that, Acts follows. <laughs> because he is risen, Jesus says to his disciples, Acts chapter 1-8, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, they're going to go forth and declare the message that Jesus is risen. They're going to bear witness to that fact, the fact that they have been eyewitnesses to that truth. And then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, and immediately they begin bearing witness to the message of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, who he is. Then the church grows. Yes, it grows through the witness of his people, but it also grows through the lives of his people. 
They speak the message of the gospel. They speak the story of Jesus. But then people are also able to see lives shaped by this message. They're a beautiful community of love and unity. And the people see this and the church grows. Word and deed put together. And as the church grows, as we know, persecution grows with it. But God gives his church the power and the boldness to continue steadfastly in the mission that he has given them. And so by the time we come to the end of Acts chapter 5, this is what we read. Last, last verse before our passage today. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Hallelujah. And so that's where we're at at this point in the book of Acts. The witness of the church can't be stopped. The church is continuing to grow. Now let me tell you a universal truth about growth. All kinds of growth. It's that healthy things grow and growing things change. I guess that's two truths. Healthy things grow and growing things change. That's true no matter what we're talking about, actually. We think, we think about a seed. A seed goes into the soil. If the soil's healthy, if there's moisture, if there's warmth, this shows you how much I know about gardening. If, if, if everything is in the right condition, this healthy thing will grow. But that growing thing will change. That seed's not going to look like a seed anymore. That seed's going to look like a little sapling. And eventually that growing thing, if, if it's healthy, it's going to look like a tree. Healthy things grow, but growing things change. It's true of people. I love my daughter. Um, I want her to be healthy, but I was, I was, I was playing with her this week, and I was, I was having the mixed emotions of the health and growth of my daughter. Right? I love her. I want her to be healthy. I want her to grow, but I recognize that if she's healthy, she will grow, and if she grows, she will change. She's not going to run and greet me every time I walk in the door anymore yelling, Daddy! She's in a, a phase right now. This, Proud, proud dad moment. She's in a phase right now where she'll run to the door and say, this is me. <laughs> but she's not going to do that anymore. And so sometimes the health and growth, healthy things grow, growing things change, but sometimes that change comes with mixed emotions, right? Good and bad all, all mixed together. In the church in Acts, no, actually, before we even think about the church of Acts, let's just think about the church in general, Think about young churches. Think about church plants. I know that some of us in the room were present at the church, at the planting of, of this church. And church plants typically look a lot like the church we see in Acts chapter 2, right? This familial, loving community, a loving community of, of, of love and, and unity. Um, and they're healthy uh, because they find it very easy to do this togethering that we're called to do as a church. But healthy things grow. And growing things change. And as they change, the church has to figure out how are we going to continue to function in the way that God calls us to do. All of a sudden, it's hard for a, a church family to just kind of text everybody and say, hey, we're doing burgers tonight, come over. Healthy things grow, but growing things change. And there's mixed emotions with that. And so we come to the book of Acts today, and we see the same thing happening here. This is the healthy church. The church is growing, but growing things change. And they have to wrestle with some things. How are we going to continue to do the work that God has called us to do at the size that we now are? So that's what we're going to see in the book of Acts. And it's for us, Be Free Today, we're going to look at this passage, and it's going to remind us some things about what the church is and what the church does. 
And so if you're a follower of Christ, uh, there's some direct application in this passage. If you're not a follower of Christ today and you're here with us, I want to encourage you to listen as well. Because you're going to have a picture of what the church is actually meant to be, how we're supposed to function as a family, um, as God continues to lead you to wrestle. Am I going to follow Jesus? So let's dive into Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read it, and then we'll pray. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, so growth, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase growth. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, growth. And a great many of the priests, the priests, mind you, <laughs> became obedient to the faith, growth. Let me pray. Hmm. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. This passage is one of those passages that on the surface it looks very simple, and, uh, but it doesn't take much digging to realize there's a lot we can learn from this. There's a lot of stuff here that should challenge us and encourage us. And so, Father, I pray that as we come to this passage today, that you would do that, Lord. You would, you would show us more about what it means to be your people, what it means uh, to follow you faithfully. Uh, and so, Father, I pray that you would help us have hearts that are soft to hear what you have for us this morning. Keep us humble this morning as we listen. Help us come to this word remembering that we're not yet complete, that we all have some room to grow. And I pray that we would come to you and say, Father... Show us what you have us grow, how you'll have us grow by these truths. Let us leave changed. Let us be a church at the end of this morning that looks a little bit more like you. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, can, you, can you turn off the monitor up here, actually? It's kind of buzzing. Thank you. All right, so in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, this to the disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, right? We, we, we said that already. And at this point, we have to know, we're still in Jerusalem. We're still in that first stage of the, of the growth of the church, but the church is growing. It grew from 120 people in Acts chapter 1, added 3,000 people in Acts chapter 2, and by the end of Acts chapter 2, we read that the Lord was adding to their number day by day. Now, we don't know how big the church is at this point, it's, but it's getting big. This passage actually starts by saying that in these days, the disciples were increasing in number. This, this church is healthy. Healthy things grow. Growing things change. And this growing church is experiencing some difficult change. So let me read verse 1 to us again. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, growth, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. 
It's really cool to see here the daily distribution, actually, because back in Acts chapter 4, we read that people were selling their property, right? There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. That's what we're seeing happen here. The money that was brought to the apostles is being divvied back out to the widows. Praise God. But it was being distributed to some widows and not to other widows. It was being distributed to the Hebrew widows, but not to the Hellenist Hebrews. And really, that's a cultural distinction. The Hebrew widows are those who are the Jews that are culturally, linguistically, they spoke Hebrew. The Hellenists were those who are culturally and speakers of the Greek language. There is a cultural distinction here, and the Hebrews were getting the distribution. The Hellenists weren't. And that's an issue. And the church family, they come to the apostles and they say, hey, this isn't right. They, they bring to the apostles, in other words, a, a legitimate frustration. You're, you're going to provide for the, for the Hebrew widows, but not for the Hellenist widows? There's something, there's something wrong there, especially in this day. Because widows, if, if they lost their husband, uh, they, they were unable to provide for themselves. The church was seeking to care for them. And notice, it's not saying that the, the Hellenistic widows received less. It's saying they were neglected. That they actually weren't receiving the, the care of the church. And this is the first hint of ethnic tension in the church that we see. It's going to continue throughout the rest of the book of Acts. In fact, it continues today. But how do the apostles respond? Because understand this. This is an accusation against the apostles. Directly. Acts chapter 4, the money was brought and laid at the apostles' feet. The implication of Acts chapter 6 is that it's the apostles that were supposed to be doing this distribution. People were coming to the apostles, the leaders of the Jerusalem church, saying, you guys are in sin here. Let's see how they respond. Verse 2, and the twelve, that's the twelve apostles, summoned the full number of disciples. They called a church meeting. And they said, it is not right that we, the apostles, should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. There is a lot we could pick apart in this passage. There's a lot to see in this passage, but let me just note three things. That's, that's three. Three things to note in this passage before we continue on with what's happening here. The first thing we need to see is that the apostles took this seriously. People came to the apostles and said, hey, something not right is happening here. They brought a legitimate frustration. And the apostles, they didn't defend themselves. Not immediate. They didn't, they didn't deny it. They didn't dismiss this. They listened humbly. They listened to the critique brought to them by the church. And the first thing, be free, we need to take from this passage is that the leaders of a healthy church will listen when people bring sin to them. In a healthy church, people can come to the leaders and point out sin in the leaders' lives. That's important. It's always important for the people of God to point out sin in one another's lives to confront it. But a healthy church is not a place where the leaders are exempt from that confrontation. In fact, I want to say this. I want to leave this as an open invitation for you. If you see sin in me, if you see sin in Rob, he doesn't know I'm offering this. There you go. If you see sin in Rob, if you see sin in Chris, please, please tell us. 
you know, I, I pray that this is something that we would be able to receive humbly, and um, it, it could be that we respond sinfully. I pray we don't. I pray we don't. I pray we can receive it and, and repent and change. Um, but please, come to us. I, I, and I know that a lot of the time when we see sin in somebody else's life, we pause and we ask ourselves the question, like, do I have the place in my life to speak this into their lives? And that's a good question to ask, but I just want to say this, you have the place in my life. As a part of this church, you have a place in my life. You have a place in Rob's life and in Chris's life. And frankly, um, though it's a good question to ask, I think that you have the place in far more people's life than you think to point out sin. If you do it gently and lovingly. Can I, can I just throw up Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 here? Let me read what Paul says. This is important. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So yes, see the sin and work together with this brother, you sister, you love to restore them, us, the leaders, and each other. But do it with the spirit of gentleness. Let love motivate it, not anger. That's important. And that's what actually wants to lead me on to the, the second thing I, I think we need to see here. And that is the beauty of confrontation. The beauty of confrontation. The struggle of confrontation, but the beauty of confrontation. Confrontation, when we see sin in somebody and, and we go to talk about it, that's a very hard thing to do. It is something we're called to, but it's hard. It's hard for both sides. The person who's going to confront the sin of somebody else, they have to wrestle with fear. How's this going to go? How are they going to receive this? But the person being confronted, obviously... They have to wrestle as well. They have to wrestle with pride. How am I, am I going to receive this? Am I going to see sin in my life? But confrontation is the most beautiful act of love. That, because when we confront somebody, what we're saying is, I love you, I care about you so much that I am willing to step into a really difficult conversation for your good. Because just remember the point of confrontation. Remember why we do this in the first place. It's, it's not to make somebody feel bad. That's not the goal, ultimately. Confrontation leads to conviction. When it's done well, conviction's uncomfortable. But when we're humble enough to receive that, conviction, it leads to confession. And what does confession do? Confession leads to growing communion with the Lord. We confront, not just because we like confronting, not because we're argumentative by nature, not because we like them feeling the conviction, but because we know that conviction, uh, con uh, there's too many C's going on, the, um, because uh, confrontation leads to conviction, which leads to confession, repentance, which leads to communion with the Lord. If we're bold to speak in you and we are humble to receive, communion with God will be the result. That's worth it. Actually, I'm going, to, I'm going to pause the sermon here for a moment to pray for us. Can I, can I pray for us for a moment? Father, conviction is, or too many seeds. Lord, um, confrontation, Lord, is such a difficult thing to do and to receive. But Father, I pray that in our church family, we would be a church that practices loving, gentle confrontation. And that we would be people, Lord, who are humble enough to receive that confrontation. Father, I pray for, for the people here listening today. I pray that right now you would put somebody on our heart that you need us to lovingly and humbly confront. And yes, Lord, we need to, we need to be bold enough to do that. Give us that boldness. 
I pray that it would come from a place of love. I pray, Lord, that we would do it in the, in the, in the most loving way that we know how. And Father, I pray that the hearts of those who are being confronted would be soft, would be humble, and would feel that love. This is what your people do as we labor together for holiness. So Father, work that in our church family. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Confront lovingly, receive humbly. It's the second thing. But the third thing I think we need to notice here about what's going on here is that the sin that is seen and confronted is ethnic in nature. This is ethnic tension in this passage. A group in the church is overlooking an ethnic group in their church. And I, and I think that it would be wrong for us just to simply skip over that without, without acknowledging it. Because there is, in our day, a lot of racial and ethnic tension in our world. And so I think we can look at this passage and, and see what these apostles say, see what these apostles do, how they respond when they're confronted, and just pull out a really important lesson for us. How do we respond when we face ethnic and racial tensions? Specifically, how do we respond when uh, we feel like uh, just a little convicted about these ethnic and, and racial tensions that we're seeing around us? Well, what do the apostles do? They don't defend themselves immediately. They don't deny this. They don't dismiss it. They humbly listen. That's the very least that we can do when it comes to topics of racial and ethnic disagreement, disunity, inequity. Humbly listen. To take the time to hear what the other has to say, the person who is not like you. To take the time to feel what the other person is feeling. In other words, to take the time to cultivate compassion, to cultivate empathy. Because the thing is, God calls us to treat other people like this, even if people don't give that to us. Cultivate compassion, cultivate empathy, and at the very least, humbly listen to the perspective of the other person. That's what we must do. And in the way that God, I think, helps us uh, humbly listen uh, to a diverse world saying diverse things is he gives us a big body of Christ. There is a big church, many of which are different races all around the country and all around the world. We have the opportunity as believers to listen to what other believers are saying uh, who, who have experienced different types of ethnic and racial um, tension. And so the most important thing I think that we can do in this area of racial and, and ethnic tension is we should listen to believers of other ethnicities, listen to believers of other, of other races, hear what they have to say about all this. And I want to point you just towards one resource. I know I've mentioned a, a podcast in the past, but the most helpful resource that I found on this entire topic was written by a black pastor from Dallas named Tony Evans. He, he wrote a book called Oneness Embraced, that is charitable, that is beautiful, that is saturated in the gospel, and it doesn't play with caricatures. It doesn't set up straw man just to knock them down. It actually thinks strongly about who we are as the body of Christ. So I want to encourage you, Oneness Embraced by Tony Evans. If you, if you want to dig deeper into this, this tension in our world, that is an excellent place to listen. Listen to both sides faithfully. So let's continue on with what happens in this story. That was a couple church meeting. They summon the full number of the apostles are confronted. What do they do? Number one, they call a church meeting. They summon the full number of the disciples. 
Number two, they basically say to the group, hey guys, help us find people to help us. Help us find people to help us. They create a task force to find these helpers. And then number three, and this is important to notice, they keep their eye on their calling. You see, it was necessary for them to address the neglect of the widows, but it's also necessary that they not neglect the other work that God had called them to, right? It's necessary to deal with what's going on. It's also necessary to continue with what God gave them. So what we see in verses 2 and 4, they say, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Let me ask you this. Does it sound like the apostles are being arrogant here? Does it, does it sort of sound like they're above such things, that they don't have time for serving tables? I think it, it can kind of sound like that. It might sound like that. But I want to argue that this passage is not arrogant. Actually, I think he's being biblical. In fact, I think it's actually teaching us something important about the nature of the church. You might not know this story, but I'm going to tell you a story, uh, a not often talked about story from the book of Exodus chapter 18, because in that passage, Moses, the leader of the Israelite people, has just led the people of Israel out from slavery. They're, they're out in the wilderness. They're figuring out how to be an independent nation. And every single day, this passage says, from, from the beginning of the day to the end of the day, Moses is sitting around dealing with the some of the civic responsibilities of the, of the community, dealing with disputes among people. In other words, he's getting caught up in the red tape of leading an entire nation. And his father-in-law comes, which uh, uh, your father-in-law is probably one of the people that's hard to receive criticism with, from. But he comes and he brings him this criticism in Moses' response. Hear what Moses' father-in-law Jethro says to him when he sees him dealing with the day-to-day function of the community and being sucked into that. He says, Exodus 18, what you're doing is not good. Sorry, that's the end of 17. What you are doing is not good. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice and I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God. Okay, so prayer. And bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws. Teaching. And make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look to able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe, and place such men over the peoples as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. So Moses' father-in-law, he doesn't come to them and say, look, that stuff just doesn't matter. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. (laughs) You're not able to do this alone. This task, he says, is too heavy for you. In other words, Moses, you're too weak for that. Appoint, appoint people over you, not because you're better than them. Appoint people, sorry, appoint people under you to do this task, not because you're better than them, but simply because you're too weak to do it yourself. <laughs> it's Moses' weakness that causes them to tell him to get help. 
And so here, you represent the people before God. You intercede. You pray for them. You warn them about the statutes and the law. Teach them God's ways. But then you also look for able men from all the people who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate a bribe, who place such men above the people. Find faithful help. Find help to help you. Isn't that exactly what we see in Acts chapter 6? That's exactly what we see in Acts chapter 6. In fact, we actually see it later in the Bible as well. We won't go all the way into this one, but 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. In that passage, Paul tells Timothy to point overseers and deacons. One of the main differences between overseers and deacons, they're both just a godly set of men, but the overseers, the one task in there that's not character-based is teaching. <laughs> that's the one thing that really dist- distinguishes them. And deacons, the word deacon literally means one who serves. So we look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and we see the same structure. Some men who are given the task of teaching the word, prayer, and others who take the task of service. This isn't the apostles being callous or arrogant. This is, honestly, I think it's the apostles being humble. Being willing to admit, you know what, we don't have the strength required to do everything we need to do. On our own, we need your help. And I can speak for myself as, as an elder of this church. I'm, I'm in the category who are being called to teach and, and to pray. And, and I can speak for myself to say that very little would happen around here if it was only me. Very little good, very little fruit would happen in our church if it was just me and Rob and Chris doing the work of ministry around here. Yes, we, we've been given this task of, of the prayer and the ministry of the word, but Adventureland wouldn't be happening this morning. People would still be streaming from home from my iPhone. Uh, we wouldn't have the chairs down this morning. That wouldn't look that good. The, the, the reason the church flourishes is because we work together. We are able to do far much more, do everything so much better when we work together because this is God's plan for his church. It's not just pragmatic. It's God's plan. God never intended the, church to, the church's mission, rather, to be accomplished by just a few good men. And the thing is, you could have the best pastor in the world, you could have the best elders in the world, but if the church never stepped up to, to do this tangible work of ministry, to work together, to everyone lend a hand, very little would happen in that church. Why? As Jethro says, because we cannot do it alone. The work is too heavy for us. That's the way God designed his church. Let me really quickly throw up three passages here. The first is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. This is, this is what God says through the apostle Peter. He says, as some have received a gift. No, actually, as each have received a gift. Use it to serve one another. Use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. In other words, if you have the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God living inside of you, you have a gift to use for the serving of one another. All of us, each of us. That's the way God designed His church. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12 7 very quickly. To some, oh, sorry, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, as Olivia read just a moment ago. And he, that's, that's the Lord, he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to do the work of ministry. That's not what it says. It says to equip the saints. 
to equip the disciples, to equip the believers for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. We could go on. These are the most clear passages, but there's more. But the point is this. God designed his church not to be a place where a few serve the many, but it'll be a place where the many serve each other. That was God's intention for this this community. That's what we see in this passage in Acts chapter 6. And I just want to ask, what happens next? Okay, so if that's the design that starts happening in Acts chapter 6, what is the result? The apostles receive criticism. They find help. Continuing in verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, remember those two names in the, in the weeks to come, and Prochorus and, and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of, the, of, of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests, I love that, came, became obedient to the faith. They chose these men, seven men who, who are full of faith in the Holy Spirit. They commissioned them, they laid their hands upon them, and what's the result? The result is fruit. And the word of God continued to increase growth, fruit. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, growth, fruit. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith, growth, fruit. God designed the church not to be a place where a few serve the many, but to be a place where the many serve all. That's what we see in this passage, and that's what we see throughout the New Testament. Do you see how beautiful that is? How, not, just, not just is this the right way to do it, it is a beautiful way to do it, because in so doing, we see the full gifts and the full work of the full body of Christ doing God's full mission in the world. And when the church works this way, the result is twofold. The glory of Christ and the growth of the church. The glory of Christ. He is honored and praised by our obedience. He is delighted by it, but also the growth of the church. Our church starts looking a lot like the church looked in Acts chapter 2. This, this faithful community of love and unity. And so if you've put your faith in Christ, if you, if you believe in him by faith, what he did on the cross, then you have been given the Holy Spirit. You have gifts. And if you have gifts, we want you on our team. We want you on our team because God intended all of us to work together for the growth of the kingdom of God. Can you imagine what God would do if all of us use our gifts together in unity to further his mission in this world? I mean, there's a quote by uh, the evangelist D.L. Moody, and and this this is what he says. He says, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I aim to be that man. It's a beautiful quote. I'm going to change it slightly. I'm going to change it to apply it to us. The world has yet to see what God can do with a church that's fully consecrated to him. By God's grace, let's aim to be that church. Let's link arms. Let's bring our diverse gifts together as one body as we go on mission into this world, serving one another, helping grow one another, and reaching our arms far wide into the world, making disciples in our communities. 
Let's fulfill Jesus' call to bear witness to the nations, but let's not go on our own. Let's go together. The missionaries we send, let's lift them up in prayer. When we go to work, let's pray for one another. Let's bring these people that we meet in the world into our community of love and unity. So for the question that we have to be asking ourselves today, be free, is how has God uniquely gifted you for the benefit of others? What gift do you bring to this community? I want to encourage you, you can get online and find a spiritual gift test. That's not the best way to do it. The best way to find the way that God has gifted you is twofold. Number one, talk to somebody who knows you well. Talk to somebody you've served alongside, maybe a spouse, um, somebody who has seen you serve for years, who's been able to see your strengths and weaknesses. They can help you. <laughs> It'll be a fruitful conversation, actually. You could return the favor. And the other thing you can do is serve. As you serve in different right ways, your gifts will be revealed. You'll do something and you'll say, that's ah, not really my thing. I'm pretty bad at that. But all these gifts that God gives us are gifts that need to be used. And they're also gifts that need to be developed. So serve, step out. This needs to be a church where it's okay to do things and do things badly and try again. That's the first thing. Who knows? Who knows what God will do? The second thing I want to encourage you, though, is to look around our church right now. The church in Acts, it had this obvious hole, right? Um, there was an obvious neglect, the, the, serve, the, um, the distribution to the Hellenistic widows. There was a real issue in that church. If you look around our church today, I'm sure you'll be able to find an issue or two. That's the problem with churches run by humans. These churches are never going to be finished. Our church is never going to be perfect. But as you look around, is there some good or necessary work that's being neglected here? Is there some hole that needs to be filled here? It's important that we use our gifts for the glory of God together as a church, but at the end of the day, the goal isn't ultimately just that our gifts would be used. The goal is ultimately that the church would flourish. <laughs> is there a place that you're, you could serve in our church community, some place where you could step in and fill a hole? Because I want to say uh, for the apostles, I'm oh, sorry, <laughs> not the apostles, the elders, <laughs> That's an important difference. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I want to say for the, for the rest of the elders, we need your help. We cannot do this church family on our own. God's gifts are at work today in the church, through those doors, at that table, beforehand when we were setting up, afterwards when we go home, and also throughout the week as we scatter into our communities. We need you. If the gospel is going to go into this world, Find the hole and fill it. And do so, so that we all can work together for the glory of Christ and the growth of his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these words, I, what I love about these words is that on the surface, they seem so, um, it seems like just a normal little part of the story. <laughs> just a little issue in the church that needed to be fixed. And we, we praise you, Lord, because of the way that you fixed it. Um, and Father, as we look at this passage, there are so many ways. Um, there are so many places, that little things that you have to show us in this passage. It might be, Lord, that what we're taking away from this passage is simply, man, I've, I have a friend who's in sin, and I think I, I'm, I think I can go and talk to him about that. Lord, give us the boldness to do so. 
Father, it might be that right now you're preparing somebody to come and talk to us about our sin. (laughs) Give us the humility to hear it and understand that it's coming from love. Make us a church who can do that. But, but finally, Lord, I pray that you would help all of us as a church family uh, look around and recognize, you know what, this church is my family and I have a role here. Show us what that is. And I pray that the result wouldn't just be uh, a smoother functioning church, though that's great, but that the result of that would be fruit. Increase, not just an increase of people, but an increase of faith. That people would come to know you, and that the people who know you would increase to know you more and to look more like you. Father, do this work in your church. We are dependent upon your spirit to do it. So work that in us, we pray. We give this to you, Lord, in Jesus' name.